The scripture reading for this morning is from Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with a shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is God's word. For the past uh, month, we've been looking at, uh, we began a new series called Idols of the Heart. An idol is something apart from God that inordinately shapes your heart, shapes your actions and your decisions. Eventually, an idol controls you. And John Calvin, famous theologian, once said that our hearts are a factory of idols. We're constant, we're idol factories, we're constantly putting out idols. We're constantly turning to wealth and our relationships and our spouses and our children, our friends, our pedigree as a source of worth. And there's no way that we can address idols in our day-to-day without bringing up at some point this dynamic that exists between our work and our rest. Why does God specifically call us to rest? In Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, God says in the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. In other words, set it apart for yourself. There are four points we're going to go through today, four things about the dynamic that exists between work and rest. One, why do we need it? Two, what is it? Three, where do we find it? Lastly, how do you practice it? So why do we need it? What is it? Rest, what is it? Where do you find real rest? How do you practice resting? First, we're going to go into why we need it. The passage begins, verses 1 and 2. You have Jesus and the disciples and they're walking through a grain field, and they're hungry. And so what they do is to begin to eat the grain. But in order to eat the grain, they have to process the grain with their hands. And the Pharisees, they observe this, and they condemn them for working on the Sabbath because the very way that they're manually processing this grain on a day when they're supposed to be resting. Now, we look at this and we say, how legalistic. This is so legalistic. But if you notice, Jesus doesn't say, oh, the Son of Man does away with the Sabbath altogether. That's why it's okay. He doesn't say that. What he says is, rather, in verse 5, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the king of the Sabbath. He is the authority over the Sabbath. In other words, what he's saying is the Sabbath points to him, points to himself. Now, that's a remarkable statement, incredibly remarkable. But if you think about it, one of the most crucial things that we need in our lives is rest. It's one of the most critical things that we need in our lives. This is Philadelphia. It's one of the largest, most productive cities in our country. And we're miserable because we're not getting enough rest. We're not getting enough rest. Our relationship to our work is completely out of whack. And, and if you think about it, if you, we think the meaning of rest is I need to stop working or I need to take more vacation. And as a result, because of our skewed view of what rest is, we're still tired. We're incredibly tired. The ancients, they knew better. They were much more intentional because they knew that work on one hand could be abused. And as a result, work on the other hand can abuse you. They knew that. The ancients understood that. And so they knew that uh, it's that need, that endless need to strive and achieve and accomplish things. Uh, it can control them. And so they knew that they needed to rest, to control the way they work. If you don't control the way you work, your work will ruin your families, your finances, ironically, your finances, your character, uh, your health. It takes a tremendous discipline, a tremendous maturity in our lives to be able to rest. And it's even worse today. In our context today, it's even worse. I'm going to give you a few reasons as to why it's even worse, and then we're going to move into the next point. One of the reasons is because of the ebb and flow of our economy. Our jobs today are more insecure than they were in the past. Robert Reich, he is the former labor secretary who worked under President Clinton. In Clinton's first administration, he wrote a, a pretty important book. It's called The Future of Success. And without going into all the details of the book, one of the things that he concludes in this book, this is the labor secretary of the United States during the Clinton administration, he says with statistical evidence that to the structure of labor, our labor force tomorrow, is more in flux, more dynamic than the traditional ways of viewing employment, how our mothers and our fathers viewed employment. And what that means is that era of seeing your current employer as a part of your family, that era of seeing your boss as like a family member, that your loyalty to your job, your loyalty to your group or your boss or your company, that loyalty is rapidly eroding. Not only do employees today view that as a, there's no way that they view their employers in that way, their employers don't view them as family either, nor with loyalty towards them. In fact, most of us here, when you look at your career path, you don't envision a career path in the same institution that you started in. You think, oh, I'm going to move on after a few years. That's Robert Rush. That's what he says. And so because our jobs are more in flux, because of the ebb and flow of our economy, our jobs are more insecure, we're constantly working, constantly working. The very nature of switching from one job to the next, you have to prove yourself all over again. That's one reason. The second reason the cost of living, the cost of materials uh, rapidly increasing, and the fact that people at the top on the average statistically are making 100 to 200 more times than the people at the bottom, there's this constant pressure to produce, to keep up. Third, we have technology. Technology today enables you to work anywhere and everywhere. And because you can work anywhere and everywhere, we're constantly working. We're working all the time. And that compounded with the fact, number four, our culture. You know, traditional cultures, they found meaning in life with their families. 
Their meaning, their source of worth was in their families. But in our culture today, we find more and more our meaning in what we do, in our work, in our career, in our titles, in our professions. Lastly, it's really our hearts, thus the meaning of our sermon series. You know, before sin ever came into the world, if you look at Genesis chapter 2, before sin ever came into the world, there was work, there was family, and there was rest. Before sin ever entered into our lives, we had work and rest. And that's an, that's an interesting thing, um, that man in paradise, man in his complete state, still worked. He still had a job. God had placed him as a vice ruler. He said, subdue the earth. That was his job. You saw that because Adam was starting to name the animals. To name something is to subdue, to control, to claim ownership over it, to tend to it. But because of sin, because of sin, because of the curse of sin, we see this in just one chapter later, Genesis chapter 3, work became broken. Part of the curse is by the sweat of your brow you will work now, right? The land will not produce for you. And as a result, we're overworking like crazy. We're more, than, more desperate than ever to rest. We're more desperate than ever, on the other hand, to work. One of my favorite movies is uh, Chariots of Fire. It was the best picture in 1984. And it's about, it's a true story, it's about Eric Little, who was a Scotsman, who was an Olympic runner and an Olympic sprinter. And uh, he had won the gold medal. And uh, in the Olympics, he is a Christian. It's a true story. Later on, he ended up going to China on missions. And actually, he was martyred while he was out there um, in, a, in an internment camp. Now, in this movie, he's walking with his sister. And his sister asks him at one point, why do you run? Why do you like running so much? And what Eric Little, he says is this. He says, I believe that God had made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now, you, Little in this book, is just, in, this, in this movie, is just opposed by uh, his, I guess, competitive rival, who is Harold Abrams. Harold Abrams, on the other hand, is obsessed with winning. He needs to win. He's desperate to beat Eric Little. And before this incredible race that he runs, what does he say? He says, I will raise my eyes. This is his reason for why he runs. He says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? He never knows where he stands. He says, but will I? And as a result, we're just like that. As a result, we're working and we're slaving and we're working to prove ourselves. It's why we have a deep need of the rest for the soul. We need to rest not just our bodies, but our souls. We need it more than ever. That's the first point. It's why we need it. Second point is, what is it? What does it mean to rest? The Pharisees say in verse 2, you know, they tell Jesus, they say, you're violating the Sabbath. And Jesus responds kind of with a case study in verses 3 to 5. He says, you know, David, he's going to kind of paraphrase this. He says, David, he entered the house of God when his companions were hungry. And what they did was they took the holy bread, they took the consecrated bread, and they ate what was lawful really only for priests. They violated the Sabbath. They violated the law. And, and he references uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21 um, and, and really what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, David, he was never condemned for that. He was never condemned, even though he violated the law. 
And he's, he's inviting the Pharisees, he's inviting all of us to really think through the implications of that because basically what he's saying is the Sabbath was set aside. Now keep in mind, there's no place in the Bible, I want to make sure that we're all clear here, there's no place in the Bible where the moral law is ever set aside. But he says the Sabbath law here is set aside. Now, what he's explaining here, when he says the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, The Sabbath law points to me. That's what he's saying. Whenever you see a law that's being set aside, what he's saying, especially like this, he's saying that the law was set aside because it was merely provisional. It was a provision for something else that's going to come and really provide in full. It was a temporary establishment pointing to something that will ultimately fulfill that law. What he's really saying is that the Sabbath law is a provisional law and it ends when something comes to make it obsolete. When something comes to supersede that law, to overrule in a way, to take the place of that law. What made the Sabbath laws, not the Sabbath, but the Sabbath law obsolete? In verse 5, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one to whom these regulations point to. These laws exist. These Sabbath laws, these rules, these regulations, they exist because they point to me. They point to who I am. I am the reason as a result that they're obsolete. I am the Lord of your rest. I can give you rest if you just come to me, which means if you haven't come to Jesus, you will never find rest. You will never find the rest that we need. What is it? In Genesis chapter 1, verses 31 to chapter 2, verse 3. It's printed in your call to worship. What's going on there? Now, you've got to think, in chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he creates, basically, in a system of six days, he's creating the, the, all of creation that we see. And in each day, he kind, of cap, he, he kind of culminates each day, and he says, it's good. He creates the land, and he says, it's good. He creates the sea. He says, it's good. He creates land creatures. He says, it's good. He creates the sea creatures. Good. The birds there, he says, it's good. Every day he, he creates, he says, it's good. It's good. It's good. Finally, you get to verse 31 of chapter 1. He looks at everything that he creates, and he sees all that he creates, and he says, it's very good. He's utterly satisfied. He says, it's very good. By the seventh day, he's finished with his work. He rests. He blesses that day. He makes it holy. He sets it apart because he himself rested. That's the Sabbath. Now, what is it? The Sabbath is to look at your work, all that you have done, all that you've created. If you're a student, it's when you get to take a look at all that you've done, all that you've studied, all that you've labored over, If you've been working in any type of profession, any type of career, it's to take the time to deliberately rest, to say, to look back on all that you've done, all that you've built, all that you've created. Now, we're in the habit of looking at all that we haven't done, all that there's left to do, all that we failed. That's our sin nature. That's the effect of the curse. But the Sabbath is to look at everything that you've done and to say, like God, we've created in His image, very good. I'm satisfied to be completely satisfied with what you've done. It's the only way you're ever going to stop working. It's the only way you're ever going to be free from the curse of work. 
by being satisfied with what you've done. To be satisfied, no matter what, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what you have left to do, no matter how you're being cons- uh, compensated for it. You know, the Apostle Paul, he's a, a great apostle in the New Testament. And before he became a Christian, he was a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, uh, he was brilliantly educated. They say one, perhaps one of the smartest people, one of the most intelligent people in world history. He was brilliantly educated. He was wealthy. Implied he was very wealthy. He had a great reputation. He was an incredibly moral person. And yet, he was incredibly bitter, incredibly angry. So angry to the degree that he had a hand in the murder, in the martyring of many Christians. Christians. The threat to this small sect of Jews that were rising up, believing, proclaiming Jesus Christ as their only Lord and Savior was such a threat to his righteousness that he had a hand in the murder of, of Christians. Now, if you think about it, what, what could get a person who's so morally righteous to be so angry and bitter and threatened? It was because it was about the doing. He was violently angry, violently dissatisfied, and it's why it's amazing. After he becomes a Christian, at the end of his life, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes, I've learned what it means to be content, to be satisfied, to be utterly satisfied. Paul says, it doesn't matter the circumstance. I've learned to become content in all circumstances. I can do all things, that famous verse, I can do all things in Christ. Now, we know that sin goes against that. Sin combats that. Our sin brings this natural inclination for us to always focus on more, more to do. There's so much more to do. I have to finish. I need to finish this before I rest. I need to do this or else I can't rest. Sin places our minds always on our work, always on what more is left to do. We call it, we're preoccupied. To be preoccupied is what? To be before occupied, right? Before you're even working, you're working. That's what preoccupation is. And we're disturbed by that. And if you're disturbed by that and preoccupied by that, you're going to be angered by that. It's going to dissatisfy you. The gospel teaches us to rest in Christ, the finished work of Christ. He finished it. It is finished, he said. The work is done. The only work that can never be satisfied has been satisfied in Christ. And so we can be satisfied in him and we can rest. That's what rest is. That's rest. That's what the Sabbath is. Now, point three, where do you find it? In verse five, Jesus says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the authority over your Sabbath. All our lives, we're pushing, and we're pushing, and we're pushing because we're under the notion that if I push enough over X amount of years, I can rest. But the thing is, sin combats that. We just said that. Sin goes against that because there's always going to be more to do. And once you're done, once you think, now I can rest, and you actually rest, even that's not going to be restful. Why? Because you wish you can do. It's that natural inclination. Now I have nothing to do. Who am I now? You see? And so verse 5, he says, the Son of Man is the authority over our rest. He's the only one that can give you rest. Where do you find it? The author of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, he says, actually, he says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What he's saying is if you're a Christian, there remains a Sabbath rest for you. There is a Sabbath for you. 
What is a Christian? A Christian is someone, we just said, who's able to look at his life, look at his work, and he's able to say, it's good. Just the way Jesus, just the way God was able to look at his work, because we are found in Jesus, we can look at ourselves, look at our lives, look at our work, and be absolutely, utterly satisfied, and we can say it's very good. Why? Because Christ has finished the only work that can ever truly prove myself. Christ has finished the only work that can truly justify me as a person. James Proctor's famous hymn, famous for his lyrics, really. We don't really sing that hymn as often anymore. It's famous for his lyrics, and the fourth verse is often quoted by my favorite preacher, Tim Keller. Very often focused. You see it, I think it's in uh, your, your reflection notes. It's there. But it's that last refrain, the actual refrain, the chorus, that we often quote much less. But it goes like this. It is finished, yes indeed. Finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? It's done. It's very good. We can rest in that. Leisure time, vacations, that rests the outer person. You need that too. You actually need to practice that more. But it's not enough. It's never sufficient to rest the inner person, the soul of the person. That's what the Sabbath is about. The Sabbath is about honoring the image of God. We were created. We were built in God's image. And so we were really built to glorify, to honor the image that we were created in. So to be built, we're, we're never satisfied with our bodies. And so what do we do? We work. But the thing is, it's to be satisfied being created, being created in God's image. And because we're created in God's image, that will give you a picture of your purpose, your inherent purpose, the intimacy of relationship. You're looking for relationships. You're never satisfied with your relationships. You have intimate relationship. You're never satisfied with your body. You are created in God's image. It gives you an inherent sense of power and purpose and mission. And that gives you a view of who you are, your significance, your sense of worth. We're absolutely lost. The Bible says we are absolutely lost when you don't really know that, when you don't trust that. We're absolutely lost. Now, I don't like quoting a lot of modern like, movies that just recently came out, but I have to do this. You ever seen the movie Creed? If you're from Philadelphia, you have to see Creed. You've got to see Creed if you're from Philadelphia. Why does Adonis Creed fight? Why does he fight? I mean, it's part of his legacy. And so that's why he's working. And he's sweating. And he's bleeding. I mean, round by round, he, gets more, he looks more and more a mess. Why is he working? Why is he sweating? Why is he bleeding? Why is he willing to get beat up over and over? He's just getting pummeled in this match. Ah, but being created in the image of God. You know, he's sitting there in, in the movie and Rocky, you know, the other protagonist in the movie, he's about, to, he's about to call it. He's about to call a fight. I'm not giving anything away, okay? He's about to call a fight. And Creed says, but I need to prove it. And Rocky says, why? Prove what? And he says, I need to prove that I'm not a mistake. I need to prove that I'm not a mistake. And that's why he's working. To be created in the image of God means that you have inherent value. You have inherent significance. You know you're not a mistake. No matter your circumstance, no matter what, you're, what it is that you're doing, what you do, by the very nature of who you are, you have in, there's inherent value. 
And, and uh, with, with sin, with the, fall of God, with the fall of man, we've lost that sense of value. We've lost that sense of significance. So on, on, on one hand, we're working because we're afraid we're going to go bankrupt if we don't. But on the other hand, there's a much deeper significance there. We're working because we're cosmically bankrupt. We're working because we're afraid we're going to lose a sense of worth if we don't find the right work. That there's a spiritual bankruptcy that we fear even more than physical bankruptcy, than financial bankruptcy. We're using our work to know who we are, to get an identity, to show that I'm important, to show that I'm unique, to show that I'm not a mistake like creed. So if you're religious, if you're a good person, what are you going to do? You're going to do work. You're going to do good work. And because if I do good work, if I just live according to the rules, if I just do everything right, if I pray, if I work hard, if I serve, if I'm involved in the church, if I build up this good reputation of me being this good Christian, then I'm blessed. Then I will be acceptable because if I'm acceptable before other people, surely, inherently, we think, we don't actually say that, but we believe in our hearts. If I have a good reputation, if I built up a good reputation by being a good person, then I must be acceptable before God. On the other hand, you have secularists. Secularists, they don't necessarily hold God up as a standard. They don't really believe God. They're irreligious oftentimes, right? But they set standards for themselves. If I just set up these standards, if I live up to these uh, standards, you, don't, you may not view yourself as being created in God's image, or maybe there's some con- the concept of God that you believe, but what you're going to say is, it's my self-image that I need to build up. So, and it rests on how well I meet up to my own standards or some other standard that's been set up for you. And so what are you doing? Whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're in the church or outside of the church, you're just constantly working. What you're doing is you're saying, I need to finish the work. I need to finish. But you're never going to finish if you think that way because there's always going to be more. And you're never going to be satisfied. There's never going to be a time in our lives where we say, it is done. Whatever... Whatever it is that I need to prove is done. You can't do that. The Bible says it's utterly impossible. Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me if you're tired. Come to me if you're weary. And I will give you rest for your souls. That's what he says. He says, you can't find it anywhere else. Come to me. He says, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. The author of Hebrews says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He's pointing to Christ. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. There remains a rest, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's Christ. He's pointing to Christ. He says, he is your rest. Jesus says, everyone else is trying to find rest by gaining some sort of worth in their work, in what they do, by just working. Now, think about it. It works in other ways, too. It's not just in our work because it goes even deeper. If you're living in guilt, what you're saying is, I need to work to make it right. And so I need to just work and I need to prove myself and I need to, I need to prove to people that I've changed and I need to work for their favor. You're doing the same thing, you see? There's a restlessness that comes from that. You're never going to be able to rest because you will never know, like In Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrams, you're going to say, but will I? You'll never know where you stand. And people like that, it always takes one thing to destroy everything you've built up. Trust me, I know. It only takes one thing to break down everything that you've built up. 
Everyone, Jesus says, everyone's trying to get an identity through something, but you can only find it through me. Only through me can you look at yourself in your brokenness. Only through me can you look at yourself in your failures. Only through me can you look at yourself in your striving. You can look at your work in your failures and say, whether you've succeeded or failed, can you say, it is done. Because the only work that can truly prove you, the only work that can prove you are not a mistake, the only work that can prove your significance and value and work, worth is the work that Christ has done. Be satisfied in that. Look at that and say, very good. Now, that's where you find it. So we've talked about, we talked about why we need it because we are in a state of constant flux in the world and we're constantly working. We talked about what it is. You know, it's, it's finding utter satisfaction in all the work that you've done, in who you are, because you are created in the image of God. We talked about where you can find it. You can't find it in anything else. Everything else just perpetuates the cycle of work and restlessness. But you can find it in the person of Jesus Christ because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He gives you rest. He says, come to me. You can find it in him. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, how do you practice it? First, we have to find a scriptural bearing in all this. In that second half of this passage, I'm going to kind of walk us through this here. Jesus says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And really that passage is broken up into two kind of case studies or vignettes there. And the first one, it's the disciples as they were kind of walking through the grain fields. Jesus says that critical verse right in the middle, verse 5, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then you look at the latter half of that. He comes and he sees there's this man that's, whose hand is shriveled, so he can't work. He, is, he, he can't work if he wanted to, if he tried. So you can look at the sum of all of our restlessness and the sum of all of our valuelessness and the sum of all of our seeking of significance. And this man can't find it. He can't find it anywhere because he can't even do it himself. He is completely unable. That is a picture of who we are, even at our best. And here we are. Here's this, son of man, here's this man who's, whose hand is shriveled. And so in front of the Pharisees, Jesus publicly asks. He sees this man with a shriveled hand, and he knows that the Pharisees are watching him. And he stands in front of them, and he publicly he asks, which is more lawful, to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? To save life or to destroy life on the Sabbath? And then he looks around, and he tells the man, stretch out your hand. And the man is able to stretch out his hand. He is completely restored. And that just infuriates the Pharisees. You know, they don't look at that. They're amazed, but they want to kill him. They are setting, it really sets in motion all the more their desire, uh, their infuriation with him, and they want, to, they want to destroy him. They want to kill him. Why do they do that? In verse 5, why does he do that? In verse 5, he says, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He rules over. He has authority over the Sabbath. I am the one to whom the Sabbath law points. The Sabbath laws were just a mere provision for me. Look at the power of Christ and what he does on, on the Sabbath. He's restoring. Look at the compassion of Christ. He is restoring. Look at the love of Christ. Look at the wisdom of Christ in his teaching the Pharisees who are educated scholars in the Bible. Now, what he's claiming here in being the Son of Man and having authority over the Sabbath, who is the author of the Sabbath? It was, Christ, it was God. In Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, he is the authority over the Sabbath. The Son of Man is claiming to be God. Jesus is claiming to be God, and that's the reason why they wanted to kill him. But get this, 
That's the reason, that's what makes him the Lord of the Sabbath. The very fact that they want to kill him, it sets in motion what actually makes him. They're in a way trying to prevent him from being the Lord. It actually makes him the Lord. How does that happen? It's through his brokenness. Why? In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is being baptized. And what happens is the heavens open up and the Spirit of God descends. It says the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And a voice comes out of the heavens and he says, this is my son whom I love. What he's looking, he, this is the father looking at the son. He says, this is the Sabbath. Very good. That's what he's saying, right? He's looking at his son and he's doting on his son. He's pleased with his son. He says, very good. But on the cross, what do you see? Jesus, he's sweating. Jesus is bleeding. Jesus is beaten up. Round after round, he's being beaten up. And he's bleeding. And on the cross, he's writhing. And he's sweating. And he's groaning. And he's laboring. He's crying out. He's working. He's really become a slave. Why? On the cross, Jesus is experiencing the infinite restlessness. The infinite work. The ultimate spiritual restlessness. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, my God has abandoned me. My God has rejected me. I was once very, I was acceptable. He said, pleased. Yeah, very good. That's the benediction. He is pleased with me. Now he's saying he has rejected me. He has abandoned me. He has turned his face from me. I have now become the curse. He's saying, my treasure is my God. God is my source of worth. God is the center of my life and he has gone from me. And as a result, I have given up my wealth, and I've given up my security, and I've given up my title, and I've given up my position, and I've given up my honor, and I've given up my reputation. I have no reputation and no honor and no title and no security. I'm on the cross, and I'm bleeding, and I'm beaten, and I'm sweating, and I'm groaning, and I'm working, and I'm working, and I'm laboring, I've lost complete intimacy. All the things that a man would work for, I have lost and given up everything. It's all the reasons why we work so hard. He says, I had those things. I've given it up. I've lost my worth. I've lost my value. I've lost significance. I'm bankrupt. Completely bankrupt. And he's not just physically bankrupt. When Jesus Christ left the heavens to come to, to dwell with man. He gave all of it up. He became bankrupt. You know, he said, the Son of Man has no place to even rest his head. That's what he said. And yet this man, this work, he is the Sabbath. He did it so he could become our Sabbath. Before, in creation, as God in this formless world, he creates, he says, let there be light. He said the earth before was formless and void and empty and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, which means that God, even when the earth, when there was nothing, was sovereign over all creation, all that would come to be, all that there ever was, there was God. And he created. And he said it was good and it was good and it was good. Why? Because as, what is he doing? What is creation? What is work? It's to take something that is nothing, an empty spreadsheet, and to start putting stuff in there and you're, what are you doing? You're building a model. 
And you may look at that and say, that is not, you know, I used to tell, people used to ask me, what do you do? And I used to tell them, well, you know, you know I'm, a, I'm, I'm this and I'm that. And they're like, wow, that sounds like really important work. And I said, well, actually, if you really think about it, it's not very important. What I do is I get in the morning at 8.30 because if I don't, then my boss will get mad. <laughs> so I'm going to get in at 8.30 and I, it takes about five minutes to, you know, log in. And then once I log in, I pull up a spreadsheet, the same spreadsheet that I've been working on for an entire week. And I'm just popping in numbers and then rechecking the numbers. And then I realize something went wrong. Then I got to fix the model. What are you doing? You see, you're taking something that was once nothing. And you're building something. It doesn't matter who it serves. Because the very person that's working in it, there's inherent value in what you do. And it's a redeemable work. Because somebody is benefiting from that work. Now, you may, it might not be saving lives directly. Some of you are saving lives directly. There you can see the implicit and explicit value. But the thing is, some of us say, I don't really see the explicit value. But I want to tell you, there is value in what you do. There is honor in what you're doing, no matter what it is that you do. But that's the beauty of work in and of itself. But what you're really doing is you're, doing, you're, you're creating the image of God. And what is God doing? He is taking that was formless and void. And he is make, he's bringing cohesion into that thing. He's building He's creating. So before in creation there was cohesion and he says it was very good. Here, what do you see on the cross? Jesus is falling apart. Jesus is decreated. The Trinity was torn apart because God had abandoned his son. And as the Trinity is being torn apart, not only is being decreated, he's saying even more importantly, I'm experiencing the spiritual, the cosmic incohesion incoherence the cosmic incoherence the separation and as a result I am dissatisfied I'm utterly dissatisfied I am broken why did he do that I mean Jesus Christ never needed to prove his worth it was to prove your worth it was to prove our worth 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 God made him who had no sin to become sin, what? For us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness, in a sense, means approval. We could become worthy before God. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet though he was rich, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We become rich in him. We become a treasure in him. We become wealthy in him. We become valuable in him. Do you see that? Jesus suffered the cosmic bankruptcy of the separation and the wrath of God so that we can experience the ultimate satisfaction of being found in him. That's the gospel. The cross says you are worthy. The cross proves you are not a mistake. The cross proves your significance. The cross proves your value. Why does Adonis Creed keep fighting? To prove that he's not a mistake. Jesus labors and endures. Why? To prove you are not a mistake. You have ultimate significance. And this is why he says on the cross, it's done. When he says it is finished, he's saying, I've done the work 
the actual, the actual language, what he's really saying is the debt is paid because there's this cosmic debt we make, that makes us work. When you're in debt, you're always working. You have to work to pay off the debt. You're never going to be able to rest until you pay off the debt, right? Jesus Christ on the cross says, it's finished. The transaction is made. The debt is paid. Some of you, you know, the, the social app Venmo, you know, you owe somebody money, you, boom, you pay the debt, right? Jesus is saying, cosmically, that debt has been transferred. It's paid. Completely paid. If you're a perfectionist, you're still trying to finish the work. You're still trying to finish the work. It's finished. There are people in here who have failed in their work, and so now they have to work even harder. I need to recover, or I just need to prove myself. You're still trying to finish the work. There are people in here living with guilt in their lives, and they're constantly in a perpetual state of work. Jesus Christ said, it is finished. That debt has been paid. Jesus labored. Jesus paid the price so that you can rest. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. If you come to him, he will give it to you. He will give it to you. The only prerequisite is what? Jesus, I'm tired. I'm spiritually tired. I've been working all my life. I need to rest. The gospel, a Christian, is someone who can say, God accepts me, not based on my record, but on his record, on the record of Christ. Not based on my works, but on the work of Christ. Not based on my goodness, but on the goodness of Christ. Transfer to me so that when God looks at me, he can say, very good, very good. That's significant, very significant. The high priest, Hebrews chapter 1, the high priest, he says, Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Very significant because the high priest, after doing his priestly work, he never sits. He never sits. Once a year, the high priest enters in and he goes into the most holy place and he performs the, satru- uh, the sacrifice, the rituals of sacrifice to atone for the entire nation. But he never sits down. Why? Because it was a provisional law. That was merely a provision in waiting for Christ who will come. And that's why in our Apostles' Creed we recite what? He ascended into heaven and what? He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. He rests because it is done. And because he rests in saying it is done, every time you look at the cross, you can rest and say it is done. It is finished, yes, indeed. Finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? I'm just going to take a few minutes to practically talk. This is, we talked about the scriptural foundation for this. It is written. It is truth. It is sealed. How do you practice it? Very quick things. I'm going to run through this very quickly, okay? If you're taking notes, I'm sorry. I'm going to just run through it very quickly, all right? One, See Sabbath as your deep satisfaction. Okay, you got to look at your Sabbath. You got to look at yourself and you look at your life. That God's, you have to remind yourself that God's love for you is enough. That God's satisfaction in you isn't enough. Is it? Is it enough for you? There's a pastor that I uh, respect. Uh, I used, to, I used to, especially his reading, his writings. 
And one of the things he says um, is he said that uh, in order to remind him, you know, pastors, they work all the time. They're always working. A 40-hour week that doesn't exist for a pastor. And he says what he would do is every night he would go to sleep to remind himself of the gospel. He takes a look at, he recounts everything he did during the day as he's falling asleep. It's how, some people count sheep. This is what the pastor does. He says, I, I basically lie down and I recount everything that I've done. And every time I say, yeah, I did this, I, I remind myself. But that alone would never save you. So Jesus Christ had to cover over it. And I did this, but Jesus Christ covered over that. And I did this, and Jesus Christ covered over that. And then he takes a look at every area where he's failed that he can at least think of. And he reminds himself as he's dozing off into his sleep, but Jesus Christ covered over that too. And I didn't finish this, and Jesus Christ covered over that too. Is God's satisfaction in you enough? Secondly, you got to see the Sabbath as an act of liberation. Slaves work all the time. So if you're working all the time, you're actually a slave. That's the definition of a slave. A slave never rests. Now you have a master that will never overwork you. Will you abandon other masters? Then you are free. You are utterly free. What role do your idols play in your work? Another way of asking that is, how does money, how does your security, how, does your, how do your relationships, how, do your need to, how does your need to prove yourself make you a slave? Can you, do you have the power, have you ever said no? The buck stops here. The line is drawn here. Anybody here will say, oh yeah, I could do that. Have you done it is what I'm asking. If you haven't, then you're a slave. Thirdly, can you see your Sabbath as an act of dependence? You see the dynamic here? Satisfaction, freedom, now dependence. Can you see your Sabbath as an act of dependence on Christ? In the agrarian culture, you tended, you tilled the land seven days. You know, it's not like the plant stopped growing on the seventh day, right? We, we can sh- shut down our business, you know, and we can say, okay, I'm going to rest. But the thing is, back in the day, the plants kept growing. The land kept growing. The cows still have to eat. But the thing is, you rested on the seventh day, which meant there was one less day of productivity. It meant that they had to trust that God would provide them sufficiently through those seven days, even though they would work on one less day. And they weren't just doing that because they were good people. They weren't. God was buffeting their natural tendency to work. Can you say, I am not in, you know, we are not in control of our careers. We are not in control of our futures. We are not in control of our work or our rest. The only one who can provide is God and God alone. And he tells you, God is the only one who will truly, he knows all. He has preordained, preordained all. He is the only one in control. Can you submit to him? He is the only one who provides. And he is telling you, you need to rest. Can you surrender control? Can you do that? The first satisfaction will give birth to your joy. The second, your liberation, will give birth to your contentment. The third one, when you give up things because of the gospel, it will give you wisdom. It gives birth to wisdom. Now, I'm going to finish with just one other, a couple of notes very quickly, even quicker. Uh, And a lot of this is outlined, and that's why I don't need to, if you really want to go into it, listen to Tim Keller's sermon on work and rest. He's got several. Uh, A lot of this comes from him. Um, How do you observe the Sabbath practically? One, take more Sabbath, okay? 
Observe it for once. Be accountable to it. Commit to stopping work at a designated time. Two, you got to balance your Sabbath. There are many ways that we rest, okay? Uh, the ancients knew this. We know this. There are many ways that we can, many dimensions of rest. One, there's recreational rest. Physical activity is a form of rest, right? Take vacation, go out and play sports, work out. There's meditative rest. To meditate is to reflect on the work of Christ that's done for you. That's why we read scripture. That's why we meditate. We think about what Christ has done. How does anything you read in the Bible point to what Christ has done? Third, contemplative rest. Reflect on the work of Christ and who you are. The first one, meditative rest, is reflecting on the work of Christ and reflecting on who he is, what he did. The second one is reflecting uh, on the work of Christ, contemplative rest, reflecting on the work of Christ and it revealing who you are. Worship rest. Uh, you got to do that privately. You got to do that in community. It's never full until you do it in community because we were created as a body. And so community groups are so important. You know, if you, don't, if you can't do community groups every week, do couples ministry, do families ministries, uh, do women's fellowship. There'll be more and more fellowships that you can engage in to be able to, uh, it's not going to be sufficient for worshiping together, but it helps to join in community to work these things out. You're going to plug in with people. If you're an introvert, start with the small groups and work your way out. If you're an extrovert, start with the large groups and work your way in and go deeper, but start somewhere. Rest as a community. Now, lastly, there's inactive rest. Just, you know, in, in Leviticus, you literally, there were years dedicated to just letting the land go. You just let it rest. Be inactive. In our world of social media, we're constantly stimulated. Let everything rest. Just be inactive. You know. I, I can go into this a lot more. Uh, the last thing I'll say is you've got to inject Sabbath even into your work, even while you're working. Some of us are in seasons of work where you're, you kind of have to perpetually work. You're in a season of work. Number one, seasons come to an end. So if you're constantly working and there's been no end, that's not a season. That's called sin, <laughs> okay? But if you're in a season of work, inject Sabbath into your work. Manage your productivity. Manage your expectations. It doesn't mean be a slouch. It doesn't mean be irresponsible. It doesn't mean be less productive. But set reasonable expectations insert reminders and even if that sometimes goes out of whack insert reminders memorize scripture okay listen to gospel oriented music listen to gospel oriented sermons spend quiet moments on your drives there's your inactivity spend quiet moments in your drives wind down before you get home admit over and over that you are weary and you're broken and you're tired and come to Christ. He is the author. He is the perfecter of you. And he is the author and the perfecter of your rest. Will you do that? Let's pray. Father, we come to you because we are weary and we are fatigued and we are